Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 6th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The outcome of several verdicts in litigation against the makers of Roundup Weed Killer are of significance to workers' compensation claims administrators who might be involved in CT claims filed by agricultural workers. There may or may not be opportunities for subrogation depending on the eventual litigation trend. The latest development involved an $86.7 million damages award for a Livermore, California couple stricken with cancer after years of spraying Roundup weed killer. This result will now be a final after the California Supreme Court refused to hear Monsanto's appeal of the judgment. The decision effectively upholds a 2019 jury verdict that found Monsanto was aware of the risks associated with its product and negligently failed to warn consumers and thus acted with malice, oppression, or fraud. Both of the plaintiffs, Alva and Alberta Piliad, were diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that they attributed to decades of using the product Roundup. In addition to $55 million in combined compensatory damages, the jury awarded each of the Piliads $1 billion in punitive damages. During the course of the five-week trial back in May 2019, Alberta testified that she never would have bought the popular herbicide if she had not known that it was brought to market based on approval studies that were found to be invalid. <clears throat> the trial judge ultimately reduced the award to a total of $86.7 million, and an appellate court affirmed the award, and in that decision wrote that Monsanto's continuing to sell Roundup after learning that the original approval studies were invalid shows conscious disregard for public health and safety. In other Roundup cases, two other Bay Area residents were awarded hefty damages by separate juries. However, the defendants recently secured a win in Los Angeles State Court, where a jury found there was not enough evidence to prove Roundup was a substantial factor in causing the rare cancer that killed a young boy. And a federal judge in Georgia also found in Bayer's favor on a plaintiff's failure to warn claim, ruling that the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act requires the company to follow instructions by the EPA not to sell Roundup with a cancer warning on its label. An appeal of that case is pending before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. In June 2020, Bayer announced a $10 billion agreement to settle a bevy of claims related to Roundup users who have contracted non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But this year, the U.S. District Judge in charge of those claims refused to approve a $2 billion deal to resolve claims from Roundup users who have not developed cancer but may be diagnosed in the future. Bayer has also vowed to remove glyphosate based products from retail store shelves by 2023 to prevent future litigation. 
Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency is a not-for-profit organization. Its members include over 30 accomplished academics, professors, and scientists from the medical schools of four most prestigious universities, including Yale, Harvard, UCLA, USF, UCI, and Brown. These academics and scientists represent a cross-section of every discipline relevant to the licensure of the Pfizer vaccine and include many of the best our country has to offer when it comes to reviewing and assessing the appropriateness and validity of the FDA's decision-making in licensing the Pfizer COVID vaccine. In further uh, furtherance of its mission last August, the organization submitted the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, request to the FDA, seeking all data and information pertaining to the application and approval of the Pfizer vaccine. FOIA provides for expedited processing of requests for records upon a showing of a compelling need. The organization requested expedited processing of the FOIA request, which was rejected by the FDA. So it filed a lawsuit in federal court seeking to obtain the data on an expedited basis. In the second joint status report following filing of this case, the FDA assessed that there are more than 329,000 pages potentially responsive to the FOIA request. The FDA asked the court to limit the FOIA response to no more than 500 pages a month. This would be nearly 55 years or until about 27-7 before the request would be completed by the FDA. In response, the plaintiff organization requests that the court require the FDA to produce documents on a rolling basis, all of them on or before March 3, 2022. The court will, at some point, dictate the delivery schedule. Meanwhile, in the months following the August FOIA request, the FDA has managed to dribble out five documents by November 17, which are now on the plaintiff's website. The most alarming of these is the document called Cumulative Analysis of Post-Authorization Adverse Event Reports Received Through 28 February 2021. This document covers just three months of adverse events after commencement of the marketing of the Pfizer vaccine. In that short time span, Pfizer became aware of 1,223 deaths reported as a result of the vaccine administration. Moreover, there were 42,086 adverse events in those three months as a result of the vaccine in total, with various outcomes between death, recovered with sequelae, and recovered. The next scheduling conference in the legal case is set for December 14, and it remains to be seen if the FDA will be compelled to deliver documents in a more expedited manner. A federal court in Louisiana granted an injunction that blocks implementation of the federal mandate for health care workers to be vaccinated. The injunction applies nationwide. 
It arises from the CMS mandate that would have required over 10.3 million healthcare workers to be fully vaccinated with one of the COVID-19 vaccines in the next two months. The CMS mandate also requires that the medical providers and suppliers track and securely document the vaccination status of each staff member, including storing staff members' medical records showing proof of vaccination. The states that filed the lawsuit argue in this new case that the CMS mandate was promulgated without following statutorily required processes, the CMS mandate is beyond the authority of the government. Thirdly, the CMS mandate is contrary to law. Also, the CMS mandate is arbitrary and capricious. And finally, that the CMS mandate violates the Spending Clause, 10th Amendment, and Anti-Commandeering Doctrine. The court went on to address the plaintiff state's five arguments in detail. In imposing the injunction, the court noted that this matter will be ultimately decided by a higher court. However, the court went on to say that it is important to preserve the status quo in this case. Although the court considered limiting the injunction to the 14 plaintiff states that were unvaccinated, uh, there, where there are unvaccinated healthcare workers in other states who also need protection. So the injunction applies nationwide. A big question in opioid litigation pertains to how far down the chain of distribution from the drug manufacturer, the prescribing doctor, to the pharmacy that fills a prescription can liability be established by plaintiffs seeking payment of the opioid uh, crisis. A New York Jury verdict, a new jury verdict this week may help to answer that question. A Cleveland jury concluded that Walmart Incorporated, CVS Health Corporation, and Walgreens Boots Alliance Incorporated helped create a public health crisis by failing to properly monitor opioid prescriptions through their pharmacies. The federal court panel backed claims by two Northeast Ohio counties that the pharmacy chains failed to create legally mandated monitoring systems to detect illegitimate opioid prescriptions. These counties are seeking reimbursement for the cost of dealing with addictions and fatal overdoses. A judge will hear arguments in May about the county's compensation claims. The two Ohio municipalities want the pharmacy owners to pay a combined $2.4 billion to replenish depleted budgets for drug treatment, social services, and police. Walmart and other pharmacy operators unsuccessfully argued the municipalities could not prove they created a so-called public nuisance through lax prescription oversight when the scripts were written by licensed doctors. They also touted their systems designed to help pharmacists track patient visits, making it easier to spot red flags among prescriptions. The jurors in Cleveland deliberated for more than five days before returning the unanimous verdict against the pharmacies. But the companies all said they would appeal the verdict. And now our crime report. 
a former volunteer reserve captain for the Orange County Sheriff's Department, has been charged with defrauding the state's workers' compensation system of $17 million. 54-year-old Seaman Simon Seaman, who lives in Los Angeles County, faces a maximum 16 years in state prison if convicted of seven felony counts of fraud and seven enhancement counts of committing a white-collar crime of more than $500,000. He has pleaded not guilty and is free on a $4 million bail. Seaman had been a sheriff's reserve officer since 1993, and he was let go by the Sheriff's Department this September. Simon ran a security company called PacWest Security Services, but did not have workers' compensation insurance for his employees as required by law. Authorities said the alleged $17 million theft represents the largest insurance premium fraud case ever filed in Orange County and the second largest in the state of California. Attorney for Mr. Simon did not return phone calls seeking comment, and the Sheriff's Department declined to comment other than to say he was no longer with the agency. And a 78-year-old physician, Edmund Kemprude, who lives in Dublin, California, was found guilty of 14 counts of illegally prescribing opioids and other controlled substances. Medical board records show that he was a 1973 graduate of the University of California at San Francisco School of Medicine and has been licensed in California since 1974. He stipulated to the surrender of his license effective October 25, 2021 and is no longer licensed in California. Kim Prude worked in several locations around the East Bay and Central Valley, including one location in a back room of a nail salon and medispa in Tracy, California. He prescribed highly addictive, commonly abused prescription drugs, including hydrocodone, alprazolam, and oxycodone, outside the usual course of professional practice and not for legitimate medical purposes. He ignored indications that his patients were addicts or that they were diverting the drugs. Instead, he wrote more prescriptions for highly addictive and dangerous controlled substances, charging $79 a visit. Several pharmacies were so troubled by his prescriptions that they instituted company-wide policies to block them. Undercover officers testified that on 14 occasions he prescribed opioids without determining the patient's medical and prescription histories, without conducting a proper medical examination, without confirming the legitimacy of the patient's complaints, and without assessing the risk of aberrant drug behavior. Kemprude is scheduled to be sentenced on February 14 when he faces a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison. The San Francisco District's Attorney's Office has charged Russell A. Robinson, a now disbarred San Francisco-based attorney, with multiple felony counts for defrauding a client, two courts, and two insurance companies, all while illegally practicing law after he was suspended from doing so. Robinson had been placed on involuntary inactive status by the California State Bar back in June 2019 and after that he was not authorized to practice law. 
Nonetheless, Robinson allegedly continued to practice as an attorney. He also is alleged to have made false statements to induce a client to retain his services and even filed a lawsuit on the client's behalf in a California Superior Court. As part of that lawsuit, Robinson filed numerous false documents bearing the forged signatures of a licensed attorney and a legal assistant with the court. Robinson also allegedly impersonated his client and others in his communication with the different insurance companies. And he is alleged to have forged his client's signature on documents he submitted to the insurance companies for settlement. These fraudulent communications and documents resulted in the insurance companies providing about $265,000 in settlement proceeds to Robinson for his client, most of which he allegedly embezzled. Robinson also forged the signature of a legal assistant on 12 documents he filed with the review department of the California State Bar Court. The California Supreme Court disbarred Robinson in June 2021. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted an order adopting regulations to update the evidence-based treatment guidelines of the medical treatment utilization schedule. The updates effective for medical treatment services rendered on or after November 23rd. The updates are based on the 268-page ACOM guidelines for low back disorders, which were published on February 13, 2020. A few of the more notable recommendations of the new guideline, which are illustrative of the new approaches, are that the new guideline says that patients should be encouraged to return to work as soon as possible. As evidence suggests, this leads to the best outcomes. This process may be facilitated with temporary, modified, or alternative duty, particularly if job demands exceed the patient's capabilities. Full-duty work is a reasonable option for patients with low physical job demands, and the ability to control such demands, such as alternate their posture, as well as for those with less severe presentations. It goes on to say that among the modes of exercise, aerobic exercise has the best evidence of efficacy, whether for acute, subacute, or chronic low back pain patients. And it says that many invasive and non-invasive therapies are intended to cure or manage low back pain, but no quality evidence exists that they accomplish this as successfully as therapies that focus on restoring functionality functional ability without focusing on pain. In those cases, the traditional medical model of curing the patient does not work well, the guideline says. Instead, patients should be aware that returning to normal activities most often aids functional recovery. And the final example in the new guideline says that patients should be encouraged to accept responsibility for managing their recovery rather than expecting the provider to provide an easy cure. This process promotes the use of activity and function rather than pain as a guide, making the treatment goal of return to occupational and non-occupational activities more obvious. 
The PBM Accountability Project reports that it is a coalition made up of stakeholders across healthcare, labor, business, pharmacy, and consumer patient advocacy. It is working to advance solutions to help redirect prescription drug savings from pharmacy benefit managers back to patients, employers, health plans, and taxpayers. It just released a new report that it claims sheds light on how pharmacy benefit managers are finding new and hidden ways to profit off of the role that they play in managing prescription drug benefits. The report claims that between 2017 and 2019, PBM gross profit increased by 12% from $25 billion to $28 billion, but the sources of these profits changed substantially over the same period. The sources of PBM gross profits shifted due to the changes in contracting practices, competitive pressure, and public scrutiny. The report discusses the market dynamics and misalignment incentives that have resulted in system-wide inefficiencies and allowed PBMs to drive up costs for patients, employers, and overall healthcare system. They say PBMs benefit directly from prescription medicine list-priced growth, leading to misaligned incentives in the system. Several sources of PBM revenue for medicines are linked directly to the list price of the medicine. When the list price of medicine goes up, the PBM often collects more money. These misaligned incentives can drive up costs for plans and patients. And excess complexity and information asymmetry in the market prevent payers and patients from properly evaluating PBM decisions or drug costs. Pricing complexity and lack of transparency allows PBMs to buy products or services from one stakeholder in the system and then sell the same products or other services to other stakeholders at higher prices without the payer understanding the true cost or inflationary nature of the services purchased. They say there is a lack of meaningful PBM industry standards and lack of regulatory oversight that has enabled PBM revenue growth. Many PBM contracting mechanisms and revenue sources lack agreed-upon definitions, providing PBMs with the broad discretion to design the terms of a complex contract in their favor. The report concludes by saying these findings highlight the need for consideration of new approaches to realigning PBM incentive structures as part of prescription drug policy discussions, including delinking PBM compensation from the list price of medicines, requiring rebates and discounts to be shared with plans and patients at the pharmacy counter, and ensuring patients' choice of pharmacies. In the insurance industry, frictional costs include claim adjustment and administrative expenses that are not normal business expenses that are generally contemplated by fixing a premium amount by underwriting. But rather, frictional costs are consequences of extraordinary events that might put a strain on capital and profitability. The WCIRB has released its Friction in the California Compensation System report which details the primary drivers of California frictional costs 
the impact of high frictional cost claims and recent trends in frictional costs. Frictional costs in the California workers' compensation system are much higher than other systems across multiple categories, despite some recent decreases in frictional costs in California. In California, it cost $0.48 cents in frictional costs to deliver $1 of benefits to injured workers. This is almost twice the median workers' compensation system and significantly above other systems that deliver medical benefits. Recent favorable trends have moved California somewhat closer to the median state in the last five years, but it is still 61% higher than the median state in total offense costs per lost time claim at 36 months. Since 2015, total frictional costs in the California insured system declined by about a third of a billion dollars. This decline was largely concentrated in medical legal costs. The WCIRB has identified four primary drivers of these California frictional costs. They include the higher volume of permanent disability claims, the higher proportion of cumulative trauma injuries, the longer duration that claims remain open, and disproportionate levels of friction regionally within California. California has by far the highest number of permanent partial disability claims filed compared to any other state and more than twice of the median state. States that use the same version of the American Medical Association guides to determine permanent disability as in California do not have similar volumes of PPD claims. PPD claims are more complex, remain open longer, and incur more than three times the administrative expense than temporary disability-only claims. While data in other states is not readily available, CT claims are believed to be significantly more prevalent in California. The proportion of CT claims that involve non-trivial administrative costs is significantly higher compared to that for specific injury claims. Prior WCIRB studies also indicate that the vast majority of CT claims are litigated, with many filed later and on a post-termination basis. Average administrative expense costs differ significantly across the state, with the highest costs in Southern California around the Los Angeles Basin. The average administrative cost per indemnity claim in this region is about 29% higher than the rest of the state. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkCop Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz of Floyd, Scarron, Minuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.